Thanks, Raymond, and uh, thanks for being here on this evening when the uh, Chiefs and the Eagles play. <laughs> I'll know what you're doing if you're checking your phone in the midst of it, um, but Bobby Jameson can help you with that, and you can actually be fully present. Also, if there are any questions about any of my lecture, I'll just say, Champ, do you have anything else to say about this during the whole lecture? Because <laughs> that's the pattern right now. Um, so if, if I don't know what I'm saying, then I'll, I'll get Champ up here. Is that... Uh, is my screen displaying yet? Let me get my screen up here. I'm going to go to a lot of text, and so I wanted to show you my screen so you don't have to be flipping around in the scriptures, but let me set it up really quick. As I'm doing that, uh, let me just give you a little narrative of how I got interested in the Ascension and writing on the Ascension, and then I'll just kind of jump right into it. Um, is it coming? Okay, good. I think it is now. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, I was working on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And I read a book on the Ascension. I thought, wow, there's not a lot out there on the Ascension. I'd love to do more work on that. I was doing my PhD. I was doing something else. And I thought it was just kind of that something that you log in the back of your mind, like, I should do more work on this. I'm really interested in this. I don't have time right now. So years went by, had many kids, <laughs> and uh, I was contracted to write an Acts commentary and the first thing you come to in an Acts commentary is Acts 1 and Acts 1, 9 through 11, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so I really developed a lot of my theology of Acts out of the ascension, and then I did a spin-off book for my Acts commentary on the ascension because I love that doctrine so much. And not only that, as I was thinking about it, um, I was a pastor at a local church, and uh, the pastor asked me to preach, and he never liked me to jump into his series, so he always had me do something else. And he was like, what do you want to preach on? I was like, I want to preach on the Ascension. And so I preached a message on the Ascension, which became the outline for the book, actually. So it was kind of an expanded sermon. Um, so I've loved thinking about the Ascension. I feel like not many people have written on the Ascension, so I keep getting asked to speak on it, which is great, because I love thinking about it. So I pray uh, that this time is just beneficial for you as we meditate on Jesus' ascension together. So let me uh, begin just with some definitions in terms of what we're speaking about. Uh, I'm going to be going to a lot of texts and a lot of different places. I welcome questions, so please write down questions as I go. Uh, I'm going to be getting into stuff that I didn't get into in the book and that I'm kind of exploring myself uh, in terms of the biblical text, so I'd love questions and comments on those, and I'll, I'll warn you when I'm like, I think this is the case, um, but uh, something that we can explore together. I hope that's uh, fun and challenging for you as well. So when I say the ascension, what, what are we speaking about when I say the ascension? There's, the ascension refers to Jesus going into heaven. Jesus going into heaven. There's another term that we actually use for him being seated on the throne, and that's uh, an old archaic word, session. That's for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, typically when I use ascension, I'm referring to both events together, because really the ascension is the journey of Jesus into the heavens, and the goal is for him to sit at the right hand of the Father. So when I say ascension, I mean session. If I say session, I mean ascension. I think you can kind of combine the events together. Um, and this is a really important, my, one of my big arguments tonight is this is a very important event and doctrine in the life of Christ that we often don't think about, we often don't talk about, and that just kind of, we, we leave to the side. Um, Douglas Farrow, who's actually a scholar who has written on the Ascension, this is what he said about the Ascension and how it's typically treated. He says this, and I quote, It's remarkable how little mention the Ascension gets these days. Once it was seen as the climax of the mystery of Christ, 
Today, it is something of an embarrassment. Now, he was writing at a time where it's an embarrassment because it's supernatural. Like, what, what are we supposed to do with this middle-aged Jewish man flying into the heavens? Like, wh- what do we do with that? And so, he was interacting with kind of this anti-supernatural world. And he was saying, even biblical scholars are like, what, what do we do with this event? It's kind of an embarrassment because we don't know how to describe it and what exactly happened. Now, I think there's two kind of everyday evidences that we tend to neglect this event, this doctrine. Um, the first evidence of this that I see is that typically when I hear a gospel summary, not, not Raymond's gospel summary anymore, but when I hear a gospel summary, I hear meditations about Jesus' life, his death, and hopefully we get to his resurrection but oftentimes, we, we kind of stop there in terms of a gospel message. So I detail this more in my book, and I tell this story. I don't know if you guys listen to Audible at all, but I've, I've been really getting into audiobooks because it's a great way to listen to books when you're driving, when you're doing something else, when you're mowing the lawn. But what's, what's strange about Audible books is, you know, when you're reading a physical book, there's like a natural stopping point. Like, okay, I'm done with this chapter, and you put down the book and you're done. But with Audible, it's uniquely like I'm done mowing the lawn, and it's just like done, right? <laughs> or I'm done driving to this place. I got to get out of the car. And so you like, you cut off at weird points in the book. I remember actually listening um, to a book called Ready Player One, which is actually a fabulous book, and I come to the climax of that book where the climax is, and this isn't revealing anything, but it's, it, the climax is, and then everyone died, is actually the line. And then everyone died. And I got home, and my kids are, like, running out to the car. They're like, Dad's home. And I'm like, all right, it's off. And I'm, like, in the midst of, like, the climax of the story, right? And I'm like, what happens? But the kids are here. And so I'm like, hey, good to see you guys. i got to go figure out what happens in this book. Um, but I tell that story because often I think when we tell the gospel story, we actually come to this kind of climactic point in Jesus' life when we kind of shut off the car. Does that make sense? The resurrection, Jesus is alive. And then it's like, and therefore you need to repent and believe. But there's another event that happens after the resurrection. And it's a hugely important event according to the New Testament. The the other way that I can see that, um, that there's a tendency to neglect this event is just with church holidays. Think about uh, if you're in a lower church evangelical tradition, if you're in a high church, this might not be the case, but if you're in a lower church tradition, you celebrate Christmas, the incarnation, often you'll celebrate Good Friday, the death of Jesus, and you'll celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, but Easter, it's over. That's like the highlight, right? And that's great. I'm, I'm not downplaying the resurrection, But notice, even in the low church tradition, we follow certain things in the church calendar, but we kind of stop at the resurrection thinking that's the climactic moment, and then we don't do Ascension Sunday a month later, and we don't do Pentecost Sunday actually a week later. So we we leave that off. So I think even kind of in the formula of our church traditions and how we celebrate the different events in Christ's life, it's actually pretty evident that the Ascension ends up being sidelined somewhat just in the way we engage in the church calendar. So let let me speak more. Let me just give you five reasons, um, five reasons why we might tend to neglect the ascension. Um, Those are evidence of how we do, but why why might we be neglecting this event? Um, So first reason 
It, it does seem that at times that the Bible speaks little of it. In other words, maybe we're not speaking about it because we're following the tradition of the Scriptures, and the Scriptures highlight the resurrection, not the ascension. Uh, and so that would be actually a good conclusion. We do resurrection, maybe not ascension, because it's just not spoken of as much. It is true. Um, hopefully you can see this. Are you guys good in the back? Can you see that? Do I need to make it any bigger? No, it's good. Okay. Um, it is true in the scriptures, it's only narrated, the ascension of Christ is only narrated in two places, both in Luke's writings, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. So in Luke 24, 50 through 53, and he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, we're going to return to some of these texts as we talk about this, he blessed them. Actually, this is the last text we go to. This is like a bookend. This is cool. Okay. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them. And here, here's our key line. And was carried up into heaven. That's the ascension. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So we have um, four, three to four verses on Jesus' ascension, right? You have whole chapters on his resurrection. You've got just a little kind of, oh, and he was carried up to heaven. So we, we read that, and it's pretty quick, and it might be easy for us to kind of skip over that. You also have a narration of the event in Acts 1, 9 through 11. So again, the second volume of Luke's work, he tells the story again. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Again, he was lifted up into the sky, into the heavens. Now, just to be clear, this isn't portrayed as, as like a symbolic thing. I think it is a symbolic thing, but it's a real, physical, literal, historical event. The disciples are watching this. A cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So again, three verses. So we've got six to seven verses that actually narrate the ascension of Jesus. So maybe, I'll go to more text, but maybe we don't think about it a lot because in terms of like spacing in the Bible, right, it's kind of small, right, in terms of the narration of the event. Um, I'm going to argue with myself about this in just a minute, so I'm setting this up, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Also, at the end of the other Gospels, Jesus is there. <laughs> like, he doesn't ascend to the heavens. So it raises the question, like, is this kind of a Luke emphasis, Matthew? You have the Great Commission. Jesus came to them. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Very famous text, but where is Jesus? He's on the top of the mountain. He's there. Boom. Gospel ends. No ascension. So again, if it's so important, it is interesting that Matthew doesn't include it. He doesn't include it. He doesn't have Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father, which raises the question, okay, are you over, like maybe you're overplaying this a little bit, right? Um, what about the end of Mark, okay? So we've looked at Luke. Yeah, great, Luke has it twice. The end of Mark, I mean, there's two endings of Mark, but the original ending of Mark, Mark 16, 8, 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So this is recounting, they go to, the women go to the tomb, and there's no body there. So it's a resurrection account, and it ends, and Jesus has been raised from the dead. There's no ascension at the end of Mark, again. So we have Matthew, we have Mark, no account of it. We have Luke, who recounts it twice. John, what happens at the end of John? Um, well, John's still there. Uh, Jesus is still there at the end of John, too. In John 21, the last chapter of John, Jesus is hanging out with the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, and uh, he tells them to throw their nets down. They catch a bunch of salmon or tilapia, and then they end up eating on the beach, and then it's over, like the, the gospel's over. So again, at the end of Matthew, Jesus is on the mountain. At the end of Mark, the disciples, the women disciples, are running away from the tomb in astonishment. At the end of John, Jesus is on the beach eating fish with his disciples. So maybe we neglect it because it seems like the Bible speaks little of it. I would also say, um, I, you know, I said I think this is key to uh, the gospel presentation. But if you think about like a short gospel presentation in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, it's not there. Uh, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Here's, here's what I delivered to you, this gospel message. Um, this is the right up here, for, verse 1, the gospel that I preached to you. What is this gospel? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and then he ascended to the heavens. No, he doesn't say that. He just says, died, buried, and raised, and he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to more, then he appeared, last of all, he appeared to me. It, it just goes to appearance. It doesn't go to the ascension. So again, maybe even our gospel presentations, maybe our church calendar leans towards doing those major events in Christ's life because of the text, because of what's happening in the text here. So that's the first reason that we might seem to neglect it. The second reason is the implications are unclear to us. In other words, it's difficult for us sometimes to answer the question, why did Jesus need to ascend? Like, just step back. If you've read the Bible a lot, maybe, maybe you're like, oh, I think I can come up with some answers. But step back and think about it. The resurrection is like, he lives. That's great. The ascension is like, he's gone. Right? Like, okay, like, great. Like, is this a good thing or, or a bad thing? Like, why? I, I thought this, this is it's great that he's alive, but that he's gone is a little confusing. In other words, the implications aren't clear. I think um, the disciples are sharing some of that confusion in Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they said, Jesus, Lord, uh, so it was now the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, you've come, you've died, you've been raised from the dead. Let's get this thing going. Let's have the kingdom to Israel arrive, right? And so I think the disciples actually, in some sense, sit in the same place as us where we wonder, wait, what, what's going on here? Why do, you need to, why do we need to leave at this point? when I thought your goal was to establish the kingdom of God or the kingdom to Israel. So they're asking the question, after, that, after the resurrection, it's go time. Let's, let's do this now. And he's like, no, it's not that time. And actually, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then he ascends to the heavens. So I think there's that confusion 
in the disciples. Um, the, the other thing to mention, even in terms of like why it happened, it is interesting in Luke and in Acts, there's very little like theological explanation for why it happened. It's a very like bare historical recounting. Jesus was on the mountain, he blessed them, and then he went up to the heavens. And it's like, okay, but why, right? It doesn't explain why. Acts 1, 9 through 11, they're standing there, they're seeing Jesus, he goes up into the heavens, and two angels come down, and they say, hey, he left, and you need to, he's going to come back in the same way. Again, there's some theological explanation, but there's not a lot. It's kind of just a narration of the event. So we might be left a little confused about why, why did this need to occur? Like, what is the point of Jesus ascending to the heavens? Resurrection makes sense. Ascension, maybe it makes sense, but it's a little harder. Third reason that, what am I talking about? Oh, yeah, why we might neglect it. Uh, third reason. It seems like a bad plan. This is related, but think about the, just the logical, these logical steps. Being with Jesus bodily in the new heavens and new earth is the best end state. That's what we're longing for, right? We want to be with Jesus. Jesus is no longer with us in his body. Conclusion, it would have been better if he didn't leave, right? So I think people who just think about the ascension at a kind of visceral level, they're like, we want to be with Jesus. He was here, and then he left. So it seems like it's not, not, a good, not a great thing for him to leave in this way. Now the disciples are like left alone, and they have to do this on their own. What, what are we supposed to do with all this? So it just kind of seems like a bad plan. Again, Acts 1-6, I think the disciples are a little confused about the timing of the events. Fourth reason we, we might neglect it. The event is just abnormal. Now, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are abnormal, but the ascension is abnormal. It's objectively strange and outlandish from a modern perspective. In the days following Galileo, Newton, Copernicus, the ascension just seems ridiculous. So talk to anyone who knows anything about the atmosphere and start thinking about what in the world happened as Jesus, like, did he need a spacesuit, right? Like, what's going on? He goes up into the heavens, and what's next, right? So from a, like, a modern materialistic view, what in the world is going on with the ascension? Um, I remember actually when I was preaching that first sermon on the ascension, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I was taking kind of like a morning walk just to meditate upon it. And it's just so happened that like the clouds were like beautiful and the sun was like shining through. I'm like, oh, this is like ascension. We're like ascension Sunday. This is amazing. And I was walking around this park by our house and um, I just kind of looked up into the sky and I tried to like put myself in the place of the disciples. And again, I was like, it probably was really weird for them to see, again, a middle-aged Jewish man kind of float up into the sky. And then I started to think really weird questions like, you, how fast did it go, right? Was it like the balloon thing where you could like, oh, I still see him? Or was it like pretty fast, like he's gone? I'm guessing it was like medium speed. I don't mean to be sacrilegious or anything. But do you ever ask yourself these questions about the ascension, right? Like, what's going on here? So they're standing there, and they're watching this guy float up into the heavens. And they're like, all right, so, like, what's, hap what's happening here? Um, and so we have, I think we just have, like, some scientific questions. We, we have questions, like Raymond said, like, where did he go? 
Like, where did he go? Like, what, what does this even mean, right? Like, are the, are the heavens really up and, like, hell is down? Like, what, what, what is going on here? Like, what happened in the ascension? Um, so I, I think it just raises a lot of questions for us who think of the universe in a very modern way in terms of, okay, there's galaxies, and it's just it's very confusing to us in terms of what's happening. Okay, fifth reason. Fifth reason we might neglect the ascension is because, and I alluded to this, in the scriptures, sometimes the resurrection subsumes, or they just mention the resurrection, not the ascension. So again, this might be a good reason why we neglect it, because the scriptures put an emphasis on the resurrection and not the ascension. So um, here's a few examples of this. We saw it already in 1 Corinthians 15. What about Romans 1, 1 through 4? Um, Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So again, he's going to explain what this gospel is. It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to his flesh. So speaking about the incarnation. And notice this in verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by what? By his resurrection from the dead. So again, here's a text where it's like son of God, like the key title for Jesus Christ. I think in the gospels and in Paul's epistles, that and Messiah, he's the son of God. And he's declared to be the son of God, according to Paul, by his resurrection. So again, no mention of the ascension, which makes us think maybe uplift, resurrection, downplay, ascension, right? Um, Luke, other times it's unclear. Here's a text I think it's unclear which one they're speaking of, although I tend to think sometimes it is ascension. Luke 24, 26, this is Jesus on the Emmaus Road. Um, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Huh, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I think what the scriptures are doing here is he's talking about the Christ must suffer and then be exalted. And sometimes when they talk about exaltation, they kind of take resurrection, ascension, put them together, right? But enter into his glory, I tend to think that's actually a little bit more leaning towards the ascension itself. But you could argue that maybe that's referencing the resurrection. Um, Another example is Philippians 2, 8 through 9. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Again, here's an example where it's like resurrection, ascension, both. Maybe I think it leans a little towards the ascension with exaltation language. But you can see there's times in the scriptures where it's a little unclear. Are you referring to one or the other event? Or are you referring to both of them? It just is not clear. So those are five reasons why we might neglect it. The Bible seems to speak little of it. The implications aren't clear. It seems like a bad plan. The event is abnormal. The resurrection subsumes the ascension. So though it seems like the Bible speaks little of it, though it appears to be a bad plan, though the implications are unclear, I think the ascension ultimately poses the question of the permanent centrality of Christ. If Christ is gone, is he still fundamental to the work upon the earth, 
Or are we simply now in the age of the Spirit? Should we primarily be looking back to Christ's life on the earth, or should we, looking, should we be looking to what He is doing now in the heavens? It raises the question, what is Christ's present role? What is He doing now? What is His current activity now? I would argue, and, and this is what we're going to go through tonight, that Christ's ascension and his session need better narrative and theological positioning in our own minds. Without it, the story of Christ's work is incomplete. Without it, other doctrines become askew. Without it, the good news is truncated. The Son of God did not come to, down to earth to stay. He arrived in order that he might return and then return again. The ascension is really, really good news. So why is it so important? Let me give you three reasons why it's so important. Then I'm going to transition to kind of a priesthood uh, theme, and, but uh, let me give you five big re- or three big reasons why it's so important. Uh, I, I would argue the ascension is central to the gospel. It is central to the gospel. Even though I said Luke only narrates it, it's actually not true that the rest don't speak about it. So I wasn't lying to you, but I was, I was kind of just showing you a more literal reading. But I think the other authors are actually at least alluding to it. Matthew 28, uh, 16 through 20, in, um, or verse 18, this is the Great Commission. Remember how I, I said at the end of Matthew, Jesus is still on the mountain. But in Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, this is alluding to Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which is about what? The ascension of the Son of Man, Right? And to this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In Daniel 7, Daniel 7 is about the ascension of the Son of Man. And this is like literal language that he's alluding to in the Great Commission. Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore in all nations. This is the ascension of the Son of Man. So in other words, if you're reading carefully, Matthew is actually alluding to the ascension in the Great Commission. It's not that he doesn't leave it out. He includes it in a different way than Luke. Does that make sense? It's there at the end of Matthew. It's also, it's not there at the end of Mark, but it's certainly in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is on trial um, and he's standing before his accusers Um, The high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see, now here's the theology of the son of man coming again, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7 again. So Jesus is actually referring to his ascension in his own trial. Are you the king of the Jews, right? Are you Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, and how do you know that? Because of the ascension, you see the logic there. He doesn't just go to the resurrection, he actually goes to the ascension and the exaltation of the king. Um, John, at the end of John, yeah, Jesus is still there, but actually John has the theme woven throughout his gospel um, of the reality that that he's going to the Father. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works then these he will do because I am going to the Father. So just a reference again to going to the Father. Uh, John, I could go to a ton of texts. I'm just going to go to a few. 
John 14, 28. You heard me say I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Uh, or Jesus references his own ascent in John, I think, 3.13. No one has ascended into the heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Um, four times Jesus makes reference to his ascent in John. Uh, six times Jesus makes reference to him going to the Father in John. Once in John 13.1, he speaks of departing to the Father. Once he says, leaving the world and going to the Father in 1628. In other words, it's actually woven through all of John that John, Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. So my first point was, hey, it's just in Luke. It's just in Luke and Acts, the gospel of Luke and Acts. But that actually isn't true. It's actually woven throughout the other gospels. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is a little more difficult, but if you actually combine what you saw in Mark, notice what he calls him, that Christ, the Messiah, died. Now, Jesus was designated as the Messiah at his baptism, but there's a sense in which he's not installed, completely installed as the Messiah, the king, until his ascension. So the very fact that he has the name Christ here, we think of this as a name, it's a title, that he has the, the word Christ here, he's alluding, I think, actually to Jesus' exaltation, his resurrection and his ascension. So that is just based on that one word, but I think we do need to go there. So I do think it's central to the gospel. Now, a way that I like to explain how it's central to the gospel is by using the example of Lion King. I think Lion King is basically the biblical story told in short form, either the new one or the old one, the animated or non-animated one, right? So think of, think of it this way. The Lion King begins with a child being born who is designated as the next king by Rafiki the baboon. Remember this, right? And he actually puts something on his forehead. That, that's the baptism, right? Then another king who wants the throne, Scar, comes and Jesus is exiled to another land, or, or Simba's exiled to another land, right? So he goes to this other land. And he has to wait. This is exactly like Jesus has to do his ministry in Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem. He spends most of his time in Galilee doing his ministry. So he's exiled from his home, just like Jesus is exiled from Herod, right, who's in Jerusalem, Matthew 2. But what happens? Jesus, Simba, Jesus returns, right, to his land to bring blessings to his land. Now, this is, this is not far-fetched. This is a very good reading of Lion King, right? Jesus, Simba, returns to his land. And what's happening? It's destruction. It's chaos. Scar is reigning over all things, right? And there's like bones everywhere. And he's, he's got to restore the new creation. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, how does he do that? First thing he does is he defeats Scar in a battle. That's the cross. On the cross, Jesus defeats the devil, right? He, he, he cancels his power. But he, this is why the ascension is so important, because of the Lion King right? Simba is not installed as the king yet, even though he is defeated. He has defeated Scar, and he's kind of come back to life in some sense. They all thought, this is great. I didn't even think of this. They all thought he was dead, right? Remember? And he's alive. So anyways, he defeats, he did, I didn't plan on doing this. Sorry, Raymond. <laughs> he, <laughs> you're loving this. You're loving this. Okay, this is what you'll remember. Of all, everything I say, this is what you'll remember. So don't, don't, remember, though, he defeats Scar, and he's not king yet, because what does Rafiki say he has to do? He points at him, and he says you have to, he, he points and he says, ascend Pride Rock. Do you remember that scene? It's a really important scene, and what they're getting at 
is you can be designated as king, you can actually defeat the enemy and be king, but you have to be crowned as the king. And in the ancient world, to be crowned as the king is to ascend some sort of mountain or some, some sort of steps and to have the crown put on your head. You think about the coronation of King Charles. That was when he was coronated as the king. The ascension is the bestowal of that crown. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father to signal that he is the King of kings, the Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, we go again, Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I was speaking to the interns this afternoon during lunch, and we were talking about how why is he installed to the right hand of the Father? Why not a throne on the earth? Because the thrones on the earth are just a representation of the truest reality, which is in the heavens. If he's enthroned on the earth, he can be defeated. But if he's enthroned in the heavens, guess what? Nobody can reach him. This is Daniel 7. The kings of the earth, the beasts, actually want to tear him down from that throne. This is Psalm 2, right? But what, is, what does Yahweh say? I have installed my king on my holy hill, and you can't touch him. In other words, Jesus ascends to the highest heavens and sits on the highest throne, signaling that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he reigns over all the thrones of the earth. So I would argue, in one sense, we could say Jesus is not installed as Lord without the ascension. So one, one author, and I think this is a helpful way of putting it, the resurrection declares that Jesus lives and that forever. The ascension declares that Jesus reigns and that forever. They're both wonderfully good news, right? But if you just have Jesus who lives forever, that is really good news. But he must be installed as the king. And that's what's happening in the, at the end of Luke, at the beginning of Acts. He is installed as the Lord, the king, just like Simba. Um, so... That's why it's really, okay, I'm, I'm way off my point. Central to the gospel. Um, it's also central to the mission of the church. Let me just point this out really quick. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but notice how Acts works. Um, Jesus, uh, the disciples come and say, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Here's our like, key mission text, Acts 1.8, right? This is the table of contents for the book of Acts. But what happens right after that? Jesus ascends. And then Acts 2, you actually have the Spirit coming down to fill the believers with the Spirit so they can take the gospel to the nations. I think what we miss sometimes is the relationship between those two. Jesus is installed as the king of the universe, therefore all nations are now welcome in a unique sense. Does that make sense? Right? Jesus, son of man, Daniel 7, all nations, all kingdoms, all authorities given to him, so he says, therefore go. Which is exactly why in Matthew 28, 18, it's so important that he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, I'm about to ascend, therefore go into all nations. So in other words, the mission to the ends of the earth is based on the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's how the logic of the scriptures works. Um, you can also see the ascension is hugely important in the first Christian sermons. Uh, Acts 2.33. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon, and he just spent multiple verses on Jesus' resurrection. 
This God Jesus, or this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. But notice in 233, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Basically, what I just explained to you, Peter explains in the Pentecost sermon. Jesus had to die, he had to live, he had to die, he had to rise from the dead, he had to be ascended, and that's why you get the Spirit, and that's why you can go into all nations, and that's why these people are speaking all these different languages, because the Holy Spirit has come on them, and they're speaking different tongues, because the Spirit is uniting diverse groups. So Peter's Pentecost sermon is just explaining the logic behind all this. He's saying, look, just follow the train of thought, follow the Old Testament. This is exactly what it was predicted would happen. Uh, Acts 3.21, another sermon. Uh, they just reference Jesus' ascension. Um, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things. Again, whom heaven must receive. This had to happen until the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I could go to many other texts, but it's central to the gospel. It's central to the first Christian sermons. It's central to our mission. It's also included in most, if not all, of the early Christian confessions. There's a separate line for the ascension each time. So the Apostles' Creed says that he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God. That's a separate line from the resurrection. In the Nicene Creed, it says the Son was made incarnate, suffered, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The first council of Constantinople said, and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Just notice the early Christian confessions in terms of what happened, what do we need to confess as Christians, they're all including the ascension as a separate event. They're not just combining it with the resurrection. They're actually saying this must be central in our teaching and our thinking, etc., etc. Okay, here's another, uh, I'm kind of jumping around here, but here's another evidence that you should distinguish between the resurrection and the ascension. I think this text is really helpful when Mary is in the garden and she doesn't recognize Jesus. Um, Jesus says her name, right, Mary. She turns and she suddenly recognizes him. Um, but she, she clings to him. And Jesus in John 20, 17 says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Notice with Mary, he says, I can't stay here. The resurrection, yes, I'm back, but I need to ascend to the Father. So in other words, don't cling to me. Notice how Jesus distinguishes between the resurrection and the ascension. So why is the ascension so important. Uh, Peter Orr, another scholar, says this, Christians have tended to focus their attention on what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, and what he will do, his return, his reign, studies on what Christ is doing now or what happened after the resurrection are relatively rare. So it poses the question, what is Jesus doing now? <laughs> right? So we can affirm, I mean, the first thing we want to say is we can affirm that the ascension authorizes, endorses Jesus' work. It crowns him as king, the Lord of all. But I would also argue that it continues Christ's three roles as prophet, priest, and king. He continues to act as the prophet, as the priest, and as the king. 
Now, for the rest of our time, I spent way too much time on that, but for the rest of our time, I just want to go straight to priesthood and talk about what, based on the ascension, what is Jesus doing now? Um, and so we're just going to look as Jesus, at Jesus as a priest. Now, to begin with, let's just talk about what a priest does. I think Hebrews 5.1 is a great summary of what a priest does. Every high priest is chosen from among human beings, among men, number one. Second, he's appointed to act on behalf of human beings, men, in relation to God, and to, third, offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this is what a priest does. They're chosen from among human beings. They represent human beings to God, and they offer gifts and sacrifices to God. Now, I would make the argument, even though this is debated, I would make the argument that Jesus was a type of priest on the earth. Again, it's debated because he's not a Levitical priest upon the earth, because he's not from the right tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. So some people would say that's not true because Hebrews 8.4 says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, according to the Levitical law. You also have uh, Hebrews 7.16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, by his resurrection, he became priest. But I would make the argument that Jesus was a priest, a type of priest that goes back further to like Adam and to a Melchizedek type figure who's not a Levitical priest, that he's that sort of priest. Now, how do we know that he's that sort of priest? Well, you can think about Jesus' baptism. Jesus, in Jesus' baptism, he's designated as not only king, not only as a prophet, but also as a priest He's chosen, again, go back to Hebrews 5, verse 1. He's chosen from among humanity. And in Jesus' baptism, what he's anointed, so he's, he, he's marked out in a special way. And what's interesting is we know from Luke, so follow me here. I'm going quickly here now. But in Luke 3.22, um, when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. If you go back to the Old Testament, what's interesting is priests began their ministry at the age of 30. So I think Luke, he's very temple-focused, and he is actually alluding to this reality that Jesus is a type of priest upon the earth. Uh, Jesus' name, Yeshua, means that God will save his people from their sins. That's a priestly-type act. Um, in Mark 1.15, again, I'm going to more details here. It says the kingdom of, hand, of God is at hand, or it's arriving. That's very similar like priestly language from the Old Testament in terms of the priest arriving into the temple. Um, Jesus, he teaches his disciples how to pray, our Father in heaven. Um, he offers prayers and petitions according to Hebrews 5, 7. Uh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications it's like the incense offerings with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Um, Jesus' healing ministry also paints him as a priest. He heals those who bear leprosy. Leviticus outlines how lepers go to priests so that the priest can evaluate their cleanliness. He also acts as a subversive priest by going into the temple and cleansing the temple. And then climactically, Jesus acts as a type of priest when he dies on the cross. He's not only the sacrificial lamb, but according to John, he seems to be a type of priest himself. He has a garment that's woven into one piece. This is John 19, verse 23. That actually alludes to the high priestly garment. So Jesus is not only the lamb, but he's a type of priest when he dies. 
So I would make the argument that Jesus is a priest, a type of priest on the earth. But here's where I want to make the transition for you. He's a better priest in the heavens. He's a better priest in the heavens. The the ascension actually installs him into a greater sense of his priesthood, just like the ascension installs him into a greater sense of his kingship and a greater sense of his prophetic task. And Hebrews speaks about this a lot. But before we go to Hebrews, the Old Testament actually helps us because they speak, they give you images of priests who are going to ascend and do something for us in the heavens who are going to act on our behalf in the heavens. So there's, there's a few different places we could go, but because of time, I'm going to skip Moses ascending Mount Sinai. Moses ascending Mount Sinai is a type of priest going up and interceding for God's people. Remember what he does on Mount Sinai. He cleanses himself, he goes up the mountain, and then he intercedes for God's people on that mountain. That's what Moses does. And really, the Levitical priesthood is built on Moses' ascent up Mount Sinai. And so if you, if you go to Leviticus chapter 16, I hope you can follow me here. In Leviticus 16, this is really important. Uh, this is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And Leviticus 16 gives instructions for how the high priest is to approach really the throne of God, which is the Holy of Holies, okay? And, and what you see in Leviticus 16 and I'm going to draw this all together in just a minute. But here's uh, an outline. Kind of, ooh, too close. Let's zoom out a little bit more than that. Uh, let's see if I can get this up. What you see in Leviticus 16 is you get a picture of what the high priest is going to do on the Day of Atonement. And what's really clear from the text, I wish I had time to show you, but I'm running out of time here, is that they're going to make a sacrifice in the outer courtyard And then they're going to bring blood into the holy place, and they're going to put it on the altar of incense, and they're going to bring blood into the most holy place and put it on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So this is really important because according to Leviticus 16, this is what they call making atonement. The priest is going to make atonement. And what's really clear from Leviticus 16 is that the killing, the actual sacrifice, if we could use that term, takes place on that altar of sacrifice or outside in the outer courtyard. And according to, (laughs) I'm getting really deep now, but according to how the temple was constructed, the outer courtyard represented the earth. Okay? And the holy place represented the heavens, and the most holy place represented the highest heavens, where God resides. This is where his presence would be. So if you read through Leviticus 16 carefully, what's happening is atonement is a process. A process where there's a slaughter of an animal on the altar of sacrifice, which represents the earth. And then the high priest is going to go into the holy place, and he's going to sprinkle and present blood before Yahweh in both places, the heavens and the highest heavens. Okay, so you get the picture, right? If this is a picture of the cosmos, you're getting a picture of what's going to happen in Christ's own atonement. In Christ's own atonement. Often, often when we think of Jesus' atonement, we relegate it simply to the cross, right? Right? 
You think of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And, and there's good reason for that because you have a text like Hebrews 7.27. He has no need like those pre- high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. So there's a once for all sacrifice, right, that's given. Or you think of Hebrews 10.12. This once-for-all sacrifices on the cross. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, so he had a single sacrifice, but according to the Day of Atonement, that single sacrifice was then presented in the Holy of Holies. And what you find in Hebrews is that there's also a presentation of Christ's blood in the highest heavens in his ascension. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, this is into the highest heavens, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of what? His own blood. Now you can like say, okay, his means of his own blood down on earth, but it seems like what the author of Hebrews is getting at is he's going back to this Levitical system, and he's saying Christ in some form also brought his blood up to the heavens to present it before the Lord so that he might intercede for the people. Because what happens in in Levitical sacrifice is they go into this holy place, and that altar of incense what, what is it? It's like smoke going up before the Lord. That, that's like prayers and petitions. You can see that in Revelation. And they put the blood on the four corners of this altar of incense, and then it's the intercession that goes up in the midst of that blood. You see what's happening here. So in the same way, I'm, tr- I'm trying to do this quickly, but in the same way, Christ has sacrificed himself once for all upon the earth. But as he ascends into the heavens, according to Hebrews 9.12, according to Hebrews 1224, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Isn't that interesting? So when we think of sprinkled blood, I think we think mainly upon the earth. But according to the Levitical system, you would sprinkle blood in the holy place and the most holy place. So there's What is Christ doing in his ascension, according to Hebrews, is that he is presenting, not sacrificing. We want to be careful with our language. There's one sacrifice. He's presenting his blood, physical, literal, I I don't know, right? He's presenting his blood before the Father, and because of him presenting his blood before the Father, he can what? Intercede for us forever, Right? Do you see how the logic works? Um, This is exactly what Hebrews 7.25 says. Consequently, he is able, so he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever in his resurrection. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, again, based on resurrection and ascension, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Christ doing in the heavens on your behalf? He's praying for you. And he's praying for you based on the presentation of his blood in the heavens. He brought his blood to the heavens so that he might pray for you continually. 
Now at 604, I want to talk briefly, that's setting it up, what does he pray for us? What does he pray for us? It's so encouraging to hear that Christ prays for us, but what exactly is he praying for us? And I think we get a hint of that from what he prays for us on the earth. So look at a text like John 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep, here's the prayer, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Or John 17, verse 15. Keep them in your name. Keep that in your head. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Keep them in my name and keep them from the evil one. What is Jesus praying for us? He's praying for our preservation. From the evil one, which is who? The devil, Satan himself. We know from 1 Peter that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. We know from Ephesians that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. And we know from Genesis 3 that the serpent sneaks into God's good creation and tempts us. And we also know, I love this text in relation to this, in Luke 22, 31. I know this is a prayer upon the earth, but remember Simon Peter. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have what? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So what is Jesus doing in the heavens? He's presenting his blood before the Father and saying, keep them in my name. Keep them from the evil one. Uh, McShane said this, and this is a great quote. You've probably heard it before, but I love this quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. Isn't that glorious? Like, what is Christ doing now? He's praying for you. And do you think the Father will listen to the requests of the Son? Every time, the Father will listen to the Son. And you have an intercessor in the heavens who is praying that you would be kept from the evil one. How encouraging is that? It's not like, this is, I think our image of Christ is kind of like he ascended to the Father. He's like, all right, so now you guys finish this project for me. Like, go into the nations and, uh, you know, uh, share the gospel. No, he's up there. He's pleading before the Father on your behalf. He says, these are my children. Here's my blood. Now listen to my prayer for them, that they may be kept. What else does he pray? Uh, Look in Romans 8, 33 through 35. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right uh, ascension? Ding, ding, ding. Who is at the right hand of God? Who is what? Interceding for us. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism actually said this morning. What is, why, why does the ascension matter? Right? Remember we read that if you were in church this morning? It matters because he's interceding in the heavens for us. And what is he interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, and sword? He's not only praying for your um, protection and preservation, but he's praying for you as you go through suffering, that you would be kept. He doesn't say that we won't have suffering, 
but he says the suffering won't separate us from himself. So in other words, he's praying that we'd be kept from the evil one and also that we wouldn't be drawn away from him in the midst of suffering. He's interceding that we would not be separated from the love of Christ in the midst of suffering. In 1944, during World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were imprisoned by the Nazis in a concentration camp for their resistance work in aiding and hiding Jews. Betsy would never leave prison alive. One night in the concentration camp, Betsy read these verses from Romans 8, the ones that we just read. Corey reflected on the experience in her book, The Hiding Place, and this is what she said. So they're in the concentration camp, and this is what she said. I looked around as Betsy read Romans 8, watching the light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. It was not a wish. It was a fact. We knew it. We had experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Jesus was the victor in the concentration camps. And that was based on the reality that Jesus was interceding on their behalf. You are more than a conqueror because the Father will always listen to the voice of the Son. So we've looked at how Jesus intercedes for us in terms of our protection, in terms of our preservation. I would also argue, and I alluded to this, I'm way off my notes, so I already spoke about this briefly, but Hebrews 7.25, um, he, he also prays for our pardon. If Jesus, let me put this negatively, if Jesus is not interceding for you in the heavens, you are not pardoned from your sins. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through him. Why? Since he is able to save to the uttermost, since he always lives to make intercession. I'm not trying to take anything away from the cross. I, what I'm saying is atonement is a process. And there's a killing, there's a sacrifice, and there's a presentation of that blood. And on that basis, he intercedes for us. Final thing to speak in terms of what Jesus does for us in the ascension is he gives us a heavenly blessing. Remember, I started with this text, Luke 24, verses 50 through 51. As Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. There's just an emphasis there upon the blessing of Christ, right? And what does a priest do when they come out of the temple? When they come out of the temple, they look at the people of Israel and they give the Levitical blessing. In Numbers 6.24 through 28, the priest would say, The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Don't you love that connection with the, with the ascension? What does Christ do as he's in the ascension? He is blessing us with the high priestly blessing, and he is putting his name upon the people of Israel. Christ's ascension is good news, not just for his priestly office, but for his prophetic office and for his kingly office. The event cannot be sidelined. It shouldn't be overlooked. It marks a shift in Christ's priestly work. Now, because he has ascended to the heavens, his priestly work is universal. It's not only limited to Israel. It's for all people who have confessed their sin and placed their faith in him. 
It's everlasting. It's never ceasing. It's unchangeable. It's never being superseded. As I was reflecting even on Christ's intercession for us, it's hard for me to pray for five minutes, right? I'm sure it's difficult for you to pray for more than five minutes. I get so distracted so easily. Think about this. Jesus Christ has been praying for us consistently for 2,000 years. And he never grows tired of it. He never grows tired of, of interceding for us. And he always will intercede for us. And that is such good news. His body is pure. It's not stained by sin. As the author of the Hebrews says, he has a better body and he intercedes in a better place. That's just one example from Christ's priestly work of why the ascension is such good news. I have much more I could say, but I'm out of time. So let's, uh, can we open it up for questions? Is that what we want to do next? All right, so at this time, they're going to move some microphones to the side. I'm going to ask you if you have a question to go ahead and move to one of those microphones. Take advantage of church questions that you have. I'm going to lead off with a few while they're getting the microphone set up. Great. Uh, first of all, Mm-hmm. Maybe what have you seen churches do to try to recover this as a doctor? What, what yeah. does a service look like? Basically what we did this morning in your church. <laughs> um, you, you sing a lot of songs about Christ reigning in the heavens. Um, there are great hymns that refer to it. Many of those we sung this morning. You would read psalm, certain psalms like Psalm six, uh, 24, Psalm 68. Or a text like Acts 1, 9 through 11, or Luke 24. So often in the church calendar, you just have, uh, again, it's a month after Easter because of the the 40 days uh, after his resurrection that he ascends to the heavens. It's a month after that, and you would have most of the scripture reading, most of the hymns, and then you'd have a reflection upon the ascension. And it's just a way, just we've actually started doing this in our church. It's a way for us to remember kind of those key events in the life of Christ. Because if we're going to do Christmas, if we're going to do his death, if we're going to do his resurrection, the ascension is another great thing to throw in there. And so, yeah, many churches would do that. They, um, in the higher church tradition, the Anglican church, you have readings from the Book of Common Prayer that you would do um, based on the ascension. Uh, how would you work the ascension, at least the way you presented those tonight, into a gospel presentation? And I think you know that I mentioned that before. Yeah, yeah. Remember the right. Yeah. Tell the Lion King story just over and over again. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes when I speak about this, a lot of people think that you have to, um, it's like one more word to put into your gospel presentation that if you forget, you're like, ah, it's not, it's not real anymore. That's not really what I'm getting at. I think the point is that you need to get to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> His death is really good news, but it's good news because he now lives forever and he reigns forever. So as long as you're getting to that idea of him reigning forever, I mean, anytime you confess that Jesus is Lord, you're actually referring to the ascension, right? And so it's, it's not for me, it's not the words of like making sure you say those specific words. It's actually just getting to the concept, the idea of his exaltation. Um, because I do think Sometimes in our gospel presentations, we focus so much on the death and the sacrifice that we forget about the exaltation piece, which is both the resurrection and the ascension. And you really don't have a gospel without those two pieces. The death of Christ, if he doesn't rise from the dead and doesn't ascend to the heaven, is just another Jewish man being crucified on a Roman cross, right? Uh, But 
he rose from the dead, and he ascended to the heavens. So, need to get that in. When did Jesus receive his glorified body? <laughs> Are you asking me this right now? Oh, you really think it was helpful? Um, yeah, I, I've gone back and forth on that. I'll be more um, careful with my language than with the interns. Um, as I was reflecting on the transfiguration, you notice that Jesus is shining full of light and people are falling down dead before him. In Revelation, when the Son of Man appears, John falls down like he's dead before him. In the resurrection appearances... Something is veiled before people, but they aren't falling down dead before him. So it seems like there's something maybe slightly different going on in the resurrection. And then it makes sense, like I asked all these questions, like did he need Neil Armstrong's spacesuit to go up to the heavens? I think it makes the... It could... I want to be careful here because I'm still thinking about this. It could make sense in light of 1 Corinthians 15 the last trumpet sound, and 1 Thessalonians 4, that you receive your glorified body in the air, in the twinkling of an eye, that would match Jesus receiving his glorified body in his ascension. And at the resurrection, certainly he's receiving something different because he's walking through walls, so forth and so on, and people aren't recognizing him. But maybe he veiled that glory a little bit so they wouldn't fall down dead before him and uh, they couldn't see his glory but I think there's a good argument to be made, and as I read through the Christian tradition, um, I think many, it, it, I don't want to say many, a few of the church fathers do point towards maybe the ascension is the time where he receives his glorified body. So all that to say, I'm toying around with that idea, because I've always just assumed he receives his glorified body in the resurrection. Um, but I was trying to make sense of kind of how he, how he appears to his disciples. Yeah. Huh? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not to lessen anything that happens at the resurrection. Uh, I, I think it is, it is, from my reading, it's mixed in the Christian tradition of where people identify where that is. I think they're both, like, legitimate positions. And so I'm not going to, like, as my dad says, I'm not going to, like, die for that one, but I do want to think about it. <laughs> if you... If you if you're going to say, if you, if you say, I'm going to kill you unless you hold this other view, I'll be like, yeah, fine, at the resurrection. I'll take that view. <laughs> <laughs> Are you questions? If you have a question, go ahead and move to the microphone. Name, church. And forgive me for going so fast on the last point. I was supposed to do half of my talk on the setup and half of it on the priestly stuff, and I realized I have 15 minutes, so I just blew through that really quickly. <clears throat> my name's Ken. I'm a yeah. member here at Christ Church. I'm wondering about the... When Christ returns for the second coming, will yeah. that change his role as high priest and how he's interceding for us in terms of eternity, future, how that will change? Or will it change? That's a great question. Um, some of that de is determined by like your eschatological views and what's going to be happening on the earth. Um, I tend to think that, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I tend to think that that sort, like the Levitical system, will not be necessary in the same way. However, it's not necessary in the same way any longer as Christ is our high priest. However, I do think the Levitical system also is a picture 
of a greater reality that's happening in the heavens. So I'm actually not entirely sure how to answer that question. It's a great question because I think the Levitical system, according to, let me back up and just say this, according to Moses ascending Mount Sinai and looking to the heavens, he's making a copy of what he sees in the heavens upon the earth. That's the tabernacle, and that's the Levitical system and the temple. So as Jesus ascends, according to Hebrews, into the heavens, he goes to the, I wasn't able to do this, but he goes to the true temple, the one not made with hands. And so this, what's on earth is just a representation of the true reality in the heavens. Um, And so for that reason, maybe there's something that does continue that was represented in Levitical system, but... Once we see, I guess my, my problem with that, though, is, so I'm processing out loud, this is how I process, is once we see God, we won't, he will still be our intercessor, but in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. We will be with him forever. Right. We will see his face. So something certainly shifts, but in what way does it shift? I'm trying to think of a verse from Hebrews that could help me out. They might have something, but it's not coming to the front of my mind. So something certainly changes. In what way does it change it? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. I need to think about that more. That's a great okay. question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making me look like I have no idea what I'm talking about. Appreciate it. Just I don't know if this is helpful. Will, will Christ be No praying? more. All right, sit down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> in terms of praying in particular, will there be a need for Christ to pray for us in eternity? Maybe, I don't, I don't know if that's helpful or... Yeah. In that role. I don't know. I can I, be done. <laughs> again, I don't think I'd add anything to what I just said. We will see him face to face. So the nature of his intercession, if there is intercession, will be different. Because we will be with God and see him face to face. Beatific vision will be completely fulfilled. So that intercession, if it exists, will look different. Is where I'm landing as of today at this time. <laughs> yep. Joseph Randall, Oni Baptist Church. Thank yeah. you for the presentation. Thanks. What yeah. a great savior. Yeah. Made me want to go listen to SM Lockridge. That's my king. So <laughs> That's praise awesome. God for that. And one thing about your dad, I love your dad. He doesn't know me that well, but yeah. every time I email him, within 10 minutes, he answers me. Yeah. He doesn't do anything besides email people so, and write books. <laughs> he literally, his goal every two minutes is to get rid of all his emails. And okay. so he fires them off. He usually only replies with two words, but okay. at least it's something, right? Right, right. Thank you. Well, he just I, says thank you, and that's it. That's all you get. <laughs> I have an objection, but I think I know how you might answer it. I was wondering if you would just reflect on that. So yeah. My objection would be about Christ not becoming king until he's exalted. Yeah. When he's given all authority in heaven and on earth, he yeah. says that he has been given that while yeah. he's on earth. Yeah, yeah. Peter called him Christ right, in right. Matthew 16. Yeah. So he, he's king on earth. Yeah. Is, is that an already not yet kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. I think the way you can answer that is um, you go back to the baptism. He's already designated as king in the baptism as the Christ, the Messiah. He's already labeled as the Christ. Uh, and there's a real sense in which he's crowned as king on the cross. I would agree with that, right? I think all of the gospels portray his death as a crowning of the king. But you don't, this is where you have to be careful. We want to distinguish between the cross, resurrection, and ascension, but we also, um, they also bring them all together in kind of this full orb picture of it. And so the crowning of the king or the appointment or the coronation of the king, I think, spans from his death to his ascension. But there's, 
there's distinctions between them too, because it's like, I, Lion King again, right? <laughs> there's something about the defeat, the winning the battle at the cross, and then the installation of the king at the ascension, which is where we can then distinguish them with, without divorcing them. So I don't want to divorce them, but I do think there's, it's helpful language to say like designated, appointed, installed, coronated, use some of that language to affirm, of course, he's king upon the earth. In terms of Matthew 28, 18, because he's alluding to Daniel 7, I think he's including the ascension in the all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So the way Jesus is speaking in his allusion in Daniel 7, he's basically grabbing the ascension and pulling it back <laughs> and saying, because all this is about to happen and because I was crucified, because I was raised from the dead, because of all those things, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What I did in this presentation is I tried to really hammer the ascension to show you its uniqueness, its importance, but the next talk should be on Christ's death and his resurrection. Does that make sense? So not trying to um, divorce those in unhelpful ways, but actually bring them together. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Hi there. I'm Jeff. I go to Redeemer Bible Fellowship Church in Audubon, Pennsylvania. Um, I think uh, one thing that kind of kept popping up in my head is how the doctrine of the ascension kind of impacts the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm, Yeah. Um, Because I think one kind of thing that was kind of a weird kind of pitfall I see that kind of comes up is how it's like kind of, so like the, the popular kind of theological meme, for lack of a better term, is like, eternal subordination of, to the sun, that yep. sort of thing, yep. and how that kind of appears to be that mm-hmm. way in some mm-hmm. cases, like yeah. especially when you were using that picture of like presenting blood to the Father yes. and that sort of thing. Yep. So can you kind of elaborate and make sure to clarif- and clarify yeah. that, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, my emphasis was on Christ's, um, Jesus's messianic office and what he's doing in terms of him as the God-man, okay? So prophet, priest, and king are specifically anointed roles that he has. Um, Systematicians speak of it in terms of the economy of salvation, what Christ will accomplish. So in in, in these, uh, in my book and in this talk, the emphasis was upon what he receives as the God-man, which I think is biblical and all there. The other angle is the Trinitarian side, right? I didn't hit on that as much. But there's something in the ascension that he's returning to the Father because he's one with the Father. And the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit because the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. In terms of presenting his blood before the Father, in terms of interceding, that's especially tied to his messianic office. And so I think we can, uh, systematicians again have spoke in terms of partitive exegesis, that you sometimes speak of Christ as man, sometimes speak of him as God. My emphasis was upon his installation as the God-man, um, but you certainly want to think of it from this other angle. I would say in John, again, uh, I read the verse like, I am returning to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Interesting that he's actually using, I think, some Trinitarian kind of images there. I'm returning to my Father because I'm one with the Father, John 1, 1, right? And so um, the ascensions, yeah, certainly 
has many messianic implications, but it's also necessary at a Trinitarian level, I would say, Hmm. because of the unity of the Father and the Son, which would be a whole great project for someone else to do at some point. But I haven't done that project. So there's your, there's your next book project. Someone else's book project. <laughs> Not mine. Thank you. Yeah. No one likes this mic. Don't come up to that <laughs> yeah, mic. I see that. Uh, Andrew Vassell from Harvest Fellowship Church up in Boyertown. Uh, just a quick comment before I ask a question. I just wanted to thank you for your book. I was um, preparing to preach through Acts teach through Acts 1 a couple months ago, and I was very mm-hmm. dissatisfied with the material I had. I came across your book providentially, and it was a, an amazing help. So thank, oh, thanks. thank you thanks for, for saying that. Book. Yeah. Uh, my question is, so you gave those five reasons at the beginning. Later, you circled back to how the early church it was in all the creeds and the confessions. Yeah. So as you prepared to write the book, did you make any conclusions about how did we get to that spot of the five points of where we devalue Mm. Uh, the ascension. Mm. Um, so the early church seemed to value it. Mm-hmm. You're making the assertion that we don't as much today. How did how did that happen? Yeah. I I didn't trace <clears throat> I didn't trace that down. Um, <clears throat> so this will be me reflecting live, and I'm losing my voice <clears throat> while I do it. But um, I I think there is something I mentioned the anti supernatural bent maybe in scholarship um, that has that took over for a long time. I think. Yep. Um, more biblical and confessional seminaries are not that way, but for a long time, especially like in, in much of higher education in Christian ministry, there is a strong anti-supernatural bent, unfortunately, and you're actually sending out pastors with that anti-supernatural bent, and so I think that contributed to it, um, and then I think as we've... Um, uh, hopefully I can say this as a Baptist, as we've strayed from the church calendar, that has affected uh, the level of how we think through it. And I don't think every church needs to follow every part of the church calendar, but it has been a tool for the church to remind themselves of important events. And so we could do the same thing with Pentecost, though, too. Pentecost Sunday is a week afterwards. And uh, in, in the Baptist tradition, we could probably think more about Pentecost Sunday, right? Um, and so, yeah, I would say those two anti-supernatural the um, church holiday or, or church calendar, and then I thought I had another one, but I can't remember it right now. So those would be the two that I'd mention. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thanks yeah. for being here. Yeah. 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 Certainly. Yeah. 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 I think that's true. Yeah. The yeah in the emphasis in the pro yeah that's helpful because the emphasis in the Protestant Reformation was especially upon the cross. And I'm so thankful for that. But sometimes when you begin to emphasize one piece, you lose the other pieces. At the end of my book, I tried to bring all of the love ends kind of together to say, like, to lift up. Hopefully what happens is to lift up the ascension doesn't downplay the other ones. It actually lifts all of them up. The same way, hopefully if you lift up the cross, everything kind of rises with the water level at the same time. But I would say maybe with, um, you know, People debate, like, theories of atonement, what actually happened on the cross. That just, it, it takes up so much of the space. And then uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, it was like resurrection. Everyone was like, let's talk more about resurrection. And now, I, at least I'm kind of like, well, let's talk about the ascension, too. And so, like, N.T. Wright has this long book on, on the resurrection. There's been a lot more work on the resurrection. 
Um, and so you, it's just natural in the church that you kind of go through phases and kind of emphasize certain, certain things based on even the controversies within the church. Like what in the Protestant Reformation, you, you had the controversy about how are we saved, right? What, what does this look like? And so you, you drive home to the cross, but that can have the tendency to put something else in the background. So, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have anything back to the first time?